and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to kind of just introduce this next little part of Scripture. Romans chapter 8. We're starting a little mini-series called Blessed Assurance, hence the hymn we just sang. Um, wonderful song by Fanny Crosby. But assurance of salvation, uh, before we read our text this morning, I just want to share assurance of salvation is a problem really <clears throat> in two opposite directions or two opposite ways. And what I mean by that is, is some think they are saved when reality, in reality, they are not. <laughs> um, and when it's too late to repent, unfortunately, they will hear those haunting Words from our Lord of Matthew 7, verse 23. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's every pastor's nightmare. To think that there are people under your care that one day will stand before the Lord and they will hear those words. They thought they had saving faith, but they were mistaken. So they had assurance, but it was false assurance. On the other side of the issue of assurance is the ones who are truly saved. But they wrestle with doubts. They wrestle with questions about their own salvation. Uh, A lot of times their uncertainty causes them a lot of anxiety, a lot of grief. They can be compared to insecure children who live in a, what we might call an unloving home with maybe a mean father who threatens to disown them constantly. And they miss out on the, the uh, joy of experiencing a heavenly father's love. They're unable to come to God with full assurance that he will welcome them into his loving Arms. That's exactly what they need. They need true assurance. <clears throat> Romans 8, as you read through Romans 8, that's what this chapter is all about. It's about having that assurance in your salvation. And we're just going to spend about 30 minutes here just introducing this subject. But I said at the very beginning when we started through Romans 8 that it starts... This chapter starts with no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and it ends with no condemnation for those that are in Christ. All the way at the end, the last concluding verses, he asks the question, who is it that condemns? See, the one thing we have to understand, beloved, if we're walking in the flesh, if we're walking in the flesh, but think that you are saved, this chapter, I pray, will jar shake you into examining your own heart. Because the Bible says only those who walk according to the Spirit can have true assurance that they belong to Christ. One ministry of the Holy Spirit is to assure us that we are His children. That's one ministry that the Holy Spirit has. It's a very important ministry. In the New Testament, assurance rests on basically 
three pillars, and these aren't in your notes, but I think they're in the, the slide presentation. First, you have to abandon all trust in your own good works so that you're trusting in Christ alone for a right standing before God. Are you, did you throw away all your own good works and are you trusting in Christ and in Christ alone to secure that right standing before God? If you answer yes to that question, then the question arises, how do you know that your faith is genuine saving faith? Well, that leads to the second pillar of assurance. If your faith is genuine, then you will possess new life in Christ and that that new life always, listen to me, always manifests itself in changed thinking and behavior. In other words, there will be evidence in your life that God has changed your heart. There will be evidence in your life that there's been a transformation of you personally. You will love God. You will desire to love him more. You will want to please him by living a life of obedience in accordance with his word. You'll have a hunger, a desire to feed on his word. You'll notice that you're growing in godly character. And that will result in changed behavior. And that behavior will be the fruit of the spirit that God carries out in your life. So you'll see a change. The third pillar is this. Assurance is that inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And this is what our text speaks to today. That inner witness of the Holy Spirit who testifies that we are children of God. This isn't some experiential deal that we're talking about. We're talking about a very subjective, factual thing. When you come to Jesus Christ, the word of God says that he imparts in you, he fills you, he baptizes you into Christ by the Holy Spirit. And he deposits that very Holy Spirit in your life. And now you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not some experiential thing that goes on. It's a very factual thing that happens the moment you trust in Christ. Um, One of the things that Romans 8 speaks to as we've been working our way through this is that basically Paul is not teaching anything new here. Remember, he's not going anything over anything new that we haven't already been through. Rather, he's seeking to reinforce what he's already taught us in the scriptures. The general Theme is assurance of salvation, but that doctrine was laid out for us all the way back in chapter 5. And remember, when we talked about chapter 6 and 7, they were kind of like an explanation of what he said in chapter 5, kind of like a little side trail. And so now he's coming back to the main full subject where he left off earlier in chapter 5. And we find something new, though, when we come to Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Look at what it says, and we'll read the the text, and you can follow along in your Bibles. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of Adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That verse there tells us that those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God or children of God. You know, this is the first time that this kind of understanding pops up here in Romans. The idea that we are sons of God. It's not incidental. It's something that that the Spirit would have us to understand at this point in time. Paul is talking about assurance of salvation, right? He's arguing that one of the the basis for our new relationship to God, which is a family relationship, we're the body of Christ. And he introduces this, this text, this theme in our text, upon which he begins to speak of us as sons or sonship or children or heirs. Some of the words even appear later in verses 19, 21, and 23. And verse 14 starts off with that little phrase that links it to previous thought, for all who are led. You know, verse 14 is introduced as proof of what has gone immediately before. Calvin said this, he said, the substance amounts to this, that all those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. All the sons of God are heirs of eternal life. And therefore, all who are led by the Spirit of God ought to feel assured of their eternal life. Let me ask you this morning, are you assured of your eternal life? It's meant to be both a test of spiritual life and a comfort for those who are in Christ. As we begin this little series here, we're just going to get through maybe one or two of these first points but you have to remember, we just came out of, a, of a, a message last week saying, you know what, you either need to kill sin or it will be killing you. And that's what the previous verses told us. And so this kind of concludes the thought that if the Spirit is leading us to kill our sin, because we can't do it in the flesh, we need the power of the Spirit to do it, as we talked about last week. And if he's doing that, that process is going on in our lives and he's confirming to us the promises of the gospel, then we should have the assurance that we truly are children of God. Not based on who we are, but based upon the promises and principles that we find in the word of God. Well, there's five very important kind of truths here in these next couple verses. And I just want to start today with looking at the first one. And the first one is kind of a negative one, you might say. And the first point is this, not everyone is a member of God's family. Not everyone is a member of God's family. This is important for us to understand because in our idea in Western thought, it's a lot of liberalism, liberal thinking going on, which says, well, all human beings are sons and daughters of God. And therefore, we're all members of God's family. Have you ever heard that? Hear it all the time. But that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. Well, the popular way of of putting this has been the universal fatherhood of God. 
and the universal brotherhood of man. And with that being said, there is a sense, of course, that all human beings are brothers and sisters. We've all been created by one God. So in that sense, that's true. But that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about spiritually. And see, the way the Apostle Paul spoke in Athens in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, when he was dealing with uh, the different philosophers of the day, and he quoted the, the Greek poets, and he said, we are all his, that is God's offspring. But that is not what is meant here when he says the sons of God. And it's certainly not what the Apostle Paul was speaking of here in Romans. When Paul writes here, those who are led by the Spirit of God, he is making a mark in the sand, a line in the sand. And he's distinguishing between those who are led by the Spirit and those who are led by what? The flesh. Or not led by the Spirit. So if he's making that mark there and he's he's pointing this out that those who are led by the spirit are sons of god then there must be a segment of society that is not led by the spirit and therefore they're not sons of god they're not god's spiritual children look over at romans chapter 8 with me because we see this very clearly from our own lord's mouth himself romans chapter 8 or john excuse me john chapter 8 verse 31 thank you John chapter 8, verse 31. Now, here Jesus had been teaching the people, and um, he made kind of a similar statement to what the Apostle Paul was saying here um, in Romans. Um, He says in verse 31... Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then he, they answered Jesus in verse 33 and they said, we are of the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. You see them speaking out in their pride, Right? How is it that you say you will become free? They're saying, we're not not held captive by anybody. Jesus answered them. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And then he clarifies, he says, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered almost in protest, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would, not be, doing the, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. 
You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. So they just kind of brought up his whole deal with Mary and Joseph and kind of threw some mud on our Lord there. He says, we have one father, even God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot hear? Bear to hear my word? Verse 44. Jesus draws the line in the sand. He says, you are of your father who? The devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him when he speaks Lies. He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is born of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is what? You are not of God. Very clear teaching that our Lord laid down. He's saying not everyone is a member of God's family. Some have a different father. Usually because you're tied to a family through your father. Keep your father's name. He's pointing out to them that, you know what, your father's the devil because you don't hear the truth and follow the truth or listen to the truth. I mean, you can't say it any clearer than that. So don't buy into the liberal thinking that, well, we're all members of God's family and maybe we all just use different roads to get there. That's a lie that will take you to hell every time. The last time I checked, Jesus says, I am the way, what? The truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. There's no back door. There's no side door. There's no trap door. You don't need to pray that God would reveal a new way for your spiritual pilgrimage. He's already revealed the way, the truth, and the life. If you don't come through him, you will not come to God. You will not secure for yourself eternal salvation. And when you meet God one day and you say, Lord, Lord, he'll say, what? I don't even know who you are. Because you didn't come to me in the prescribed manner that was revealed to you through my word. So not everyone is a member of God's family. And this is important to understand because next week we're going to talk a little bit about adoption and what that whole process looks like when it comes to us being adopted into God's family. But the second point here, the second spiritual truth that is important, number one, not everyone is a member of God's family, but number two, all Christians are members of God's family. All Christians are members of God's family. 
Well, what does this involve? Coming to Christ always involves a radical change, first of all. It involves a radical change. To become a child of God means that an individual has experienced the most radical and profound change possible. It's not that they changed themselves. That change was put on them. I mean, when you stop and think about it, before a person becomes a son or a daughter of God, he or she is not a member of God's family at all, but is a member of the devil's family because there's only two families. Either you're in God's family or you're in Satan's family. When Paul spoke of this in Romans, he used the term, either you're in Christ or you're where? In Adam. You can't be both places. You can't straddle the fence. You can't have one arm in, one arm out. It doesn't work that way. Either you're in Christ or you're not. And so to be in Adam is Paul, to use the terminology of Paul earlier on in the book, means to be in sin, to be a slave of wickedness, to be under divine judgment, to be destined to eternal judgment and death forever in hell. But the opposite of that, to be in Christ, is just the reverse. It means to be delivered from sin and from judgment, to be growing in holiness, to possess eternal life in heaven with God forever. I mean, that's a radical change. That's a change that passes us from the state of slavery to the state of being free in Christ. As Daniel was showing those slides earlier of those people whose lives have been changed, those were radical transformations. See, that's, that's what we have to believe happens when someone comes to Christ. So many times we grab somebody, we pray a little prayer with them, and then we're so quick to throw them in the tank and baptize them and call them a Christian, and nothing's changed in their life. They uttered some words. Maybe they were well-meaning. Maybe they weren't. We don't know. See, we have to see that, that radical transformation takes place. And you say, well, doesn't that happen over time? I don't know. Show me in the scriptures where it happens over time. Usually it's immediate. Usually that radical change, when Christ comes into the heart of someone, when Christ comes into the life of someone, there's a radical change. Now that doesn't mean they're, they're everything they're ever going to be in Christ because we're ever growing, right, in our sanctification. We're ever growing in our relationship with others and the body of Christ and with Christ. But there should be a difference. If there's no difference... There's probably no change. No Jesus, no change. No change, no Jesus. It's real simple. That's why it's good when you're sharing the gospel with somebody that we don't dumb down the gospel. We don't, we don't make it, you know, something that's, you know, appealing to them. The last time I checked, the Bible says that the cross is an offense. It's not something that people are going to run to and say, oh, yes, I just want to give my life to Jesus so I can suffer for him the rest of my life. That's the exception. That's not the rule. 
So unfortunately, especially here in America, the church has taken the gospel, which is really a hard message. I mean, when Jesus shared the gospel with people, a lot of times he had thousands of people following him. And on occasion, he would turn around and he would tell the crowd, you know what? If you want to follow me, great. But here's the conditions, right? Deny yourself. Take up your own cross, an instrument of death, not some little gold thing they hung around their neck. And then you can follow me. Or if you want to follow me, you know what? Your love for your own family should seem as hatred in comparison to your love for me. Wow. It's amazing how we feel as Christians and as the church. We have to take a gospel that is is very clear. I mean... Jesus wasn't um, talking in in vague terms when, when he would tell people these things. I think that we, we forget on occasion what it truly means to follow Christ. Um what does that truly mean? Um, I, I rem, I'm reminded in, in Luke where the end of chapter 9, this is after Jesus fed all the folks a little earlier. Their stomachs were full. <clears throat> and all these people were following Jesus and him and his disciples were going down the road, it says in verse 57. And someone ran up to our Savior and he said, I will follow you wherever you'll go. (laughs) And Jesus turned to him and said, oh, great, 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 glad to have you on board. No, he didn't say that. Look at what he says in verse 58. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes. Okay. Birds of the air have nests. All right. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What in the world does that mean? It means this individual saw the entourage following Jesus and thought, you know what? I don't know where he's going, but I'm sure when he gets near Jerusalem, he's going to be staying in the finest hotel there is there, the Jerusalem Hilton. I need to get on board with this. I'm living in a shack. So you know what, Jesus? I'll follow you. I'll follow you. I'll follow you. Me, 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 pick me, pick me. And Jesus turns to him and says, you know what? You don't even know what you're asking for. I don't have any place to go. I don't have any place to lay my head tonight. And the indication is that that person didn't follow Jesus because he went to Jesus for the wrong motive. And then it says in verse 59, I call that guy Mr. Too Hasty. (laughs) You know, sometimes people just want to want to come to Jesus for their own felt needs. Their life's in shambles. Their marriage is on the rocks. Their kids are disobedient. <clears throat> they have alcohol and drug abuse issues. And they think somehow if they come to Jesus, he's going to make everything good. Everything's just going to miraculously going, be going, going away. They're not coming to Jesus because they're a wretched sinner and they realize that Christ is the only Savior. They're coming to Jesus to fix their problems. 
The last time I checked, that's not why we come to Jesus. Now, will Jesus fix our problems? Some of them. I think he'll give us a supernatural power if we come to Christ to deal with the problems we have in our life. But he doesn't claim anywhere that, you know what, miraculously all your problems are just going to go away when you become a Christian. That's not what the gospel says. Matter of fact, the gospel, the true gospel, says just the opposite. Jesus says, oh, you want to follow me? Well, you better prepare to suffer. <laughs> Look at what they did to me. Wait till they get their hands on you. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to go through trials, tribulations. Do we need to think about these things when we're sharing the gospel with others? Verse 59, to another one, Jesus said, follow me. But this guy says, oh, let me go first bury my father. You think, well, okay. That's not an unreasonable request, is it? Well, tradition tells us that his father wasn't even dead yet. In other words, he's saying, hey, you know what? My dad's getting older. He's got an estate. Jesus, you know, if I, if I come and follow you right now, I'm not going to have any of that stuff. <laughs> but if I wait around till he dies, then I can definitely help out your ministry. Because, you know, by the looks of things, you need a little financial help here. You guys don't have anywhere to stay. And so Jesus turns to him and says, you know what? Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Wow. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Kind of sobered him up a little bit. Verse 61. I call him Mr. Too Hesitant, by the way. 61, yet another one said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go say farewell to those who are at my house. Let me go say goodbye to my relatives. I have to tell them I'm going to follow you after all. And Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. What's he saying? You know what? You don't have anything in front of me if you're going to follow me. That includes family. That includes children. That includes work. Christ was saying with that one statement, you know what, if you're going to follow me, you better be 100%. Because that's what it's going to take. He's Mr. Too Homesick, by the way. It's so important that we understand this, that there's a radical change in the gospel whenever anybody comes to Christ. It's radical. Let's not dumb it down. Let's not take people who are professing Christ into the church and teach them how to be Christians. We don't need to do that. If they're truly Christians, they have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's very capable of teaching them what they need to know. Not that we shouldn't be doing discipleship. We should. But we need to make sure that we're discipling genuine believers, not professing believers. Secondly... It not only involves radical change, it involves change that is supernatural. And we talked about this last week a little bit with Nicodemus. How you have to be born again. And it's only God that can do such a thing. It's a supernatural change that happens. This isn't something that, you know, you start coming to church and you figure out, okay, well, these people don't smoke, they don't swear, so I guess I can't do those things. And then maybe, you know, they do this or they do that, so I'm going to kind of change. I'm going to adapt 
to this new Christian environment that I find myself in. No, it's something that happens at at the very heart that God supernaturally changes you. When he says there in John 3 that you must be born again, it implies that this birth is from above, born from above. It's not something that happens down here. It's something that God supernaturally imposes on us. It's divinely imparted. That's the only kind of transformation that will secure anybody's assurance. And then the third thing here, it is far-reaching. It is far-reaching. What do I mean by that? It's going to be developed over and over. It's important to understand that this is not the, the end of our spiritual journey. I mean, yeah, you're delivered from sin's judgment. But ultimately, the Bible says that ultimately we will be what? Glorified. Every day we're being sanctified. We're being pressed into the image of Christ. And God uses various trials and tribulations in the body of Christ and personalities to make sure that we're conforming into Christ's image. Well, one day the conforming is going to be gone, done. And we're going to be in that glorified state before our God. See, that's where chapter 5 began and that's where chapter 8 kind of ends here he says in verse 17 now if we're children then we'll be heirs and heirs of god and co-heirs with christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his what his glory martin lloyd jones stresses that the apostle's interest is always in glorification that's the target See, today's church has kind of settled on sanctification. But that doesn't stop there. See, the goal is glorification. And because we're so subjective in our own Christian walks, we're constantly looking at how we can do this better, how we can perform better, how we can... And sometimes we just have to give up and say, you know what, Christ, it's you that does this work in me. It's not me. And in closing here, the third spiritual truth that is so important is that to be a Christian means to be led by God's Spirit. It's to be led by God's Spirit. I mean, how do we understand how this works out in our lives on a daily basis? I mean, up to this point, really, the doctrines that we've been talking about might be thought to refer to a change of status only, you might say. In other words, before we were in Adam, now we're in Christ. Before we were under condemnation, now there's no condemnation. Before we were spiritually dead, but now we're spiritually alive. And that's true. But it's not the only truth that he's teaching because our change of status has been accomplished by the Holy Spirit who lives in every genuine Christian. And if you're a Christian here today, then you find yourself being led by that same spirit. 
It means that he is continually to work out that holiness in our lives, that sanctification process each and every day. And this is the way verse 14 is tied to the previous one. Look at what it says there in verse 14. He says, for those who are led by the spirit of are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. Well, how do you know? Well, look at verse 13. If you are living according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. Are you just living in unabashed sin and calling yourself a Christian with no checks, no convictions? I would say very boldly, you're probably not in Christ if that be your situation. Because the Bible very clearly says that if you are being led by the Spirit, if you are living according to the Spirit, then you will be putting to death the deeds of sin in your life. And it's not going to be perfect. We're not teaching sinless perfection here. But we are teaching Christ-likeness. We are teaching holiness. We are teaching that there should come a point in time in your Christian walk where there are changes in your behavior. Some may happen right away. Some may happen later. But there should become a time when you can look back and say, wow, this is what I was and this is what I am. And praise God, this is what I'm going to be one day. Next week, we're going to continue in this study. And we're going to be talking a little bit about adoption. And what that means, that God has adopted us into his glorious family. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful testimony of uh, Dr. Dan earlier. And, And Lord, we do pray for his ministry. We pray that he would stay committed to the things that you have led him to be committed to. That being Christ and your word and reaching out with compassion and grace to those who are yet part of God's family, that they would be shown um, the love of Christ in the area of medical missions in a way that they have never seen it before. And that because of that, they would yield their lives to Christ, that you would magnify that ministry, that you would protect that ministry. Lord, we pray for us here this morning. If there's any here who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, I pray that they would cry out to God even this morning, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who truly saves, that you don't give up on us even when we've given up on ourselves. Lord, we pray for anyone here this morning who is carrying burdens that they cannot no longer carry. Father, your word indicates that we should bring these burdens to you. And we should cast them at your feet. We could let, let you deal with these burdens in our life as we trust you to be our Lord and Savior. Father, we pray for our sister in Christ who has lost her husband this past week. Lord, you, you know the needs of this family. You know how to best minister to their hearts that must be grieving.
And we ask, Lord, that you would be gracious to them, that you would surround them with the body of Christ. That her heart and the heart of her two children would be ministered to and blessed. And Father, we pray this morning that you would um, dismiss us from this place knowing that we can have full assurance in our salvation when that assurance is based on your work in our life and not our own. Father, that we would see you work even mightier in the days and weeks and years to come as you conform us more and more into the image of Christ. Help this church to be a brighter light for your gospel in this lost and dying world we live in. I pray that the people that attend this church would be people who are solely trusting in you, that you have a burden on their heart for the lost and the needy of this world. And Father, we ask that you would just bless our fellowship afterwards, bless our refreshments for our bodies. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.